Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 179. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I've got a couple of good films for us. The first one is a 1973 French comedy starring Jean-Paul Belmondo and Jacqueline Bisset and it's Les Magnifiques. And then we go back to the 1940s, in this case 1946, for one of the great early film noirs and one of the best movies Rita Hayworth ever did and it is Gilda starring Rita Hayworth George McCready and Glenn Ford so sit back I'll get the contact details out of the way and then we'll do some comedy and film noir for you Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of classic movie appreciation. The rules are pretty simple. The movie has to be at least 20 years old, and I have to like it. Now, you can leave feedback via MP3 or email to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U, which would be appreciated. You can also leave a review on iTunes, but please send me an email when you do so I can check it out. You can also go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and like that page if you want updates. This podcast may contain naughty words and adult concepts, so if you don't want to do a lot of explaining to small children, listen to it with your headphones on. Hey people, how's it going? Um, I believe up in the north east of the US, people at the moment are blizzarded in, so if you're up that way, stay warm please, and if you listen to this way later, and it's summertime over there, disregard what I just said. Uh, yeah, things here are going fine, we're getting a lot of stuff done. I'm back doing the radio gig, by the way, and uh, with Liz Travaskis. We did uh, an Alan Rickman tribute last week on the radio, and uh, we took a look at Truly Madly Deeply that nice little BBC film he did with Juliet Stevenson. And, yeah, it was was a lot of fun. Liz and I are doing it fortnightly in this year rather than weekly because she's finding uh, watching the movie weekly a little half of her schedule. She's a very busy person. And um, I don't know if she has a producer for doing that evening show on ABC Local Radio, Northern Territory. Either way, she's busy, and so we kind of negotiated to do it fortnightly. Next time around, we're doing a nice Australian film that I haven't seen yet, which is called Last Cab to Darwin. So it's got a Darwin thing in there. And I'm looking forward to doing that. So, um, yeah, so things here are nice. It's warm. It's um, a little bit rainy and drizzly at the moment, but it's not too bad. As usual, I'll start off with the stuff that I have been watching. I've opened up the Letterboxd, and you can find this list yourself online if you go to letterboxd.com. That's Letterboxd without an E in between the X and the D. Uh, Letterboxd.com slash Paleo Cinema. You can find the movie listing, find the one for 2016 there as well. So apart from... Truly Madly Deeply, which I enjoyed this time around as well. I'd forgotten just enough to really enjoy the film. I've seen a number of films, in fact, in the last week. I've been really kind of going gangbusters with it. Uh, I did see a documentary called Mr. Warmth, The Don Rickles Project, which is a documentary about Don Rickles that I think was done by John Landis. And it's uh, about 10 years old now. But it's a good overview of Don Rickles' career and how he operates and who he is and how... the He's a much better actor than he was ever given credit for, so I enjoyed that. That was a little bit of fun. I got that on Netflix. Uh, I did see a very ordinary movie from the 1930s called New Faces of 1937, which has Joe Penno, Milton Berle, and a bunch of other people in it. Um, it wasn't all that good. I just thought I'd check it out to be slightly completist. And yeah, I, knew, I knew New Faces of 1952, the one that Mel Brooks had something to do with. So I'd check out New Faces in 1937, bit ordinary, and the reviews at the time said it was a bit ordinary, so there we go. Um, I did re-watch a Filipino horror movie from the early 1970s called Beast of Blood, which is filmed and set in the Philippines. Uh, it stars John Ashley and nobody else really um yeah it was a bit of fun i kind of liked the rawness and i liked the dubbing and i liked the bad pronunciation uh it, the thing that got me re-watching this was i re-looked at a little bit of machete maidens unleashed the documentary about filipino action cinema and so i thought i'd try beast of blood and that was a little bit of fun uh i did see a very sumptuous 
Technicolor movie from the 1940s, a kind of B-grade actioner. But it's got that beautiful, super-saturated Technicolor they had in the 1940s, and that was Cobra Woman, starring Maria Montez, John Hall, and Sabu. It's set on an island, and the girl gets kidnapped to taken to the Cobra Island where the Cobra cultists live. The plot doesn't really matter. It's all about the beautiful set designs, the beautiful people in it, and the lush Technicolor. It's a, it was a little bit of fun. I kind of enjoyed that. Then I thought I'd check out a 2015 movie that I've been waiting for, and that's Trombo, starring Brian Cranston, Louis C.K., and a bunch of other people about the career and life of Dalton Trombo. And um, even though Edward G. Robinson gets a really rough treatment in this movie, which is nothing like what happened in real life, it does give a good overview of the blacklist in the House on american Activities Committee of the 1940s and 1950s, and uh, does that well. Cranston's very good at it. Louis C.K. is very good, playing a kind of composite character who's a composite of several, several blacklisted writers. Um, yeah, it's got a, a bunch of interesting things. It's got Dino Gorman playing Kirk Douglas, and he doesn't do a bad job of it either. Dino Gorman's a... Um, a New Zealand actor who was in, amongst other things, The Almighty Johnsons. So it was interesting to see that. Uh, cast is uniformly good on that. And if you haven't seen Trumbo and you're a movie buff, you really should see it. Highly recommended. And um, allowing for the fudges they do with real life history, it's worth checking out. Uh, let's see, there's a few other things I watched. I've kind of been going to the shallow end of the pool for the last few days. I watched two of Bob Hope and Bing Crosby's road movies, The Road to Hong Kong, which was the last one done in 1962 in England, and The Road to Morocco. And of the two, Road to Morocco works much better. Uh, Road to Hong Kong has Joan Collins in it, amongst other things. Robert Morley's in it as well. Peter Sellers in it doing his Indian shtick. And uh, a cameo by... (laughs) Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin as well so it's kind of okay from that point of view but Road to Morocco is a lot funnier and a lot better it's always going to be kind of dated topical comedy and those things there's a lot of references that unless you're incredibly knowledgeable about the 1940s and the 1960s you're not going to get some of them but um, yeah I kind of watched that it was just popcorn cinema because I'd already watched the movies for the podcast so I really didn't um bother doing anything wonderful and then i did a um a public domain movie i watched after that a science fiction movie from 1960 the amazing transparent man which is directed by edward g ulmer who directed that classic film noir detour and yeah it's okay it's it's very much low budget 1960s schlocky science fiction slash horror movie um yeah nobody famous in it particularly but I kind of had fun with it. It was just, again, popcorn watching. Uh, the other thing I've watched, which, and this is according to Thomas Pynchon, the famous author Thomas Pynchon, who wrote the novel on which Inherent Vice was based, said that this movie, he said in one of his novels, not, not just anywhere, but he said in one of his novels, that this movie has the worst soundtrack of any studio film in movie history, and I agree with him. The movie is an obscure piece from about 1970 called The Big Bounce, starring Ryan O'Neill and Lee Taylor Young. It's got a good supporting cast, though. It's got James Daly in it. It's got Robert Webber in it. It's got Van Heflin as well, which is kind of cool. Lee Grant's in there as well. Uh, But, yeah, the movie is really bad. It's based on an Elmore Leonard novel, but they took great liberties with it. And um, neither of the leads is at all charismatic. They're both kind of wannabe tryhards. Ryan O'Neill, you know, yeah, he did Barry Lyndon and he did a few other bits and pieces that were kind of interesting. But in this, both he and Lee Taylor Young aren't very good at all. The story doesn't grab you. There's a bit of nudity from Lee Taylor Young, which is kind of, you know, mutes the low watchability level of the film. But the soundtrack by Mike Kerb, who was much better when he did the soundtrack to Barbarella and... Um, Kelly's Heroes. In this one, his soundtrack is just appalling. It's hard to describe why it's appalling, but if you see the 1970 version of The Big Bounce, you'll know what I mean. The movie really is dragged down by a kind of schmaltzy, stringy 
bland soundtrack. But in like a lot of these things, watching it, the soundtrack is so bad that it's fascinating. You get to the, that kind of level of things, you think, well, just when it can't get any worse, it does. And uh, the only the only two reasons for watching the that version of the Big Bands, there was a 2004, I think, version, which starred Owen Wilson. Um, but the only virtues of watching that are Lee Taylor Young's nudity and the badness of the soundtrack. So that's about all I've been watching. So I'm going to take a break now. And when I get back, we're going to talk about the first of the two films. I'm going to save Gilda for last. So we'll do the 1972 French comedy directed by Philippe de Broca, who also directed a couple of really good other action films, including uh, L'Homme de Rio, which I talked about in a previous Paleo Cinema. This one, of course, is Le Magnifique also known as The Man from Acapulco. And I've got to thank one of our Patreon subscribers for hipping me and reminding me about this movie. And that's Eric Peterson. Thanks for that, Eric. Um, I'll talk about it when I get back from the break. That is some of Claude Bolling's great music for the 1973 French action comedy Le Magnifique. I think it's very cool music too. If you're not into French cinema soundtracks of the 60s and 70s, 
They're worth checking out. There's some really good quality music there. I know Morricone did a lot of stuff for French movies at the time, but Claude Bolling does a pretty good job there. He's actually a French jazz pianist. He's still alive. He's 85 years old at the moment. But other people you might want to look out for uh, to find the good stuff are people like Georges Delarue and Michel Manier. Uh, Both of them did any number of them. And uh, they're just really good quality and slightly different um, film scores. So they're well worth checking out if you're interested in that sort of thing, and a lot of people are. Uh, You may have to search a little bit to find some of these soundtracks, and I've had to search a little bit. I happened on a bunch of uh, Michel Manier stuff for the Fantomas movies in the 1960s, the ones that were made as comedies, starring one of the most strikingly handsome guys to ever stand in front of a movie camera. Uh, being, of course, Jean Marais, who people might remember from the 1940s version of Beauty and the Beast. But anyway, that Claude Bolling soundtrack is beautifully lush and kind of well in tune with the style of the movie itself. Now, I'm just looking up Claude Bolling at the moment while I'm on that digression. He did a number of soundtracks. Uh, the Hand of Orlac, 1960. I think I've talked about that in a Martian Drive-In podcast. To Catch a Spy, this movie, um, Silver Bears, California Suite, William Phil. Um, so, yeah, he, he definitely has uh, done a number of them. And I kind of like what he did with this one. It really does work for me. Uh, one of the things about this movie is that it's kind of split down the middle and I'm talking about the movie again not about soundtracks uh, I'll see if I can find a nice little pricey for it the one I've got on the disc I've got is in French and unfortunately I can't translate that ok here we go I'll, try, I'll do a bit of the one from uh, Wikipedia Francois Merlin, played by Bomondo, is a Jean Bruce type of writer of pulp espionage novels. He has written 42 so far, and about half of the film plays in his imagination, where he's the world-renowned super-spy Bob Sinclair. The name of the character is never seen written down, and while some people write his name as Sinclair, the way they pronounce it in French sounds like Sinclair. Christine, a Jacqueline Bissett, a sociology student who lives in Merlin's building, is interested in his novels, but in the writer's imagination she becomes Tatiana, his paramour. While the pompous and rich publisher of his novels, Pierre Charon, played by Vittorio Caprioli, doubles as the great villain of the spy novels, the Albanian Secret Service head Karpov, who in a memorable scene in the film threatens to cut off one of Tatiana's breasts. Christine is very clearly fascinated with the handsome spy Bob Sinclair, an unrealistic and idealised hero who is the very opposite of his creator, a clumsy, frustrated man who barely makes enough money to get by. However, when she is befriended by the rich and vain publisher, who looks down upon his poor hack writer, she realises her mistake, and after a party when he tries to seduce her, she flees him and falls in love with Francois. Now, this movie doesn't actually start out like... It starts out very much in the world of Bob Sinclair. There's some beautiful... One of the things that uh, Philippe the Broker liked to do was to go on location. And in this case, the locations are sumptuously lovely places. They are better than any James Bond movie of the time. There are some lovely locations in this. He filmed the um, location shooting in and around Puerto Vallarta in Jalisco in Mexico. And it looks great. It's just perfect for the kind of over-the-top, sumptuous, male wish-fulfillment world that Bob Sinclair lives in. Uh, one of the other things I notice about this film is, firstly, that John Paul Belmondo does a lot of his own stunts. He was in fantastic shape at the time. Of course, in the very early 1950s and, and the 1940s, Belmondo was an amateur boxer and a very good amateur boxer. And it shows in the way he looks and the way he moves. He, he's very athletic and very cool. And very funny too. He he does have a talent for physical comedy as well. And Jacqueline Bassett does, in a sense, plays the straight man to Jean Paul Belmondo in this, playing both Tatiana and Christine. And of course, she was incredibly lovely at the time. But she did um, act well too. She there's I think she's underestimated as an actor. She was very plausible in all the acting roles that she did, but wasn't really given a chance to kind of stretch beyond a certain kind of role. The first part of this movie, by the way, is fantastic. The opening scene, you've got a spy in uh, a white suit and a white hat in a marketplace in Mexico, talking in a phone booth and, and giving information over to the spy agency. When the phone booth is grabbed by a claw hanging from a helicopter, 
the phone booth with the spy in it is dragged out over the ocean near Puerto Vallarta, dropped in the ocean. The phone booth sinks to the bottom of the ocean where it is the, the front of the phone booth is then hooked up to uh, a wire cage by a whole bunch of scuba divers. And at the other end of the wire cage is a shark, which then proceeds to kill the guy by eating his guts out. This is the kind of over-the-top comedy stuff we have in this movie. And it's beautifully done. It's all a little bit thunderball, but taken to the absurd limit. You know, you're grabbed by a helicopter in your phone booth, dropped in the ocean, sink to the bottom. They then hook you up to a shark cage with a shark in it. And you've got to admire the fact that they did that. It is quite well done. And this is even before we meet Bob Sinclair, who's kind of egotistical and um, he's suntan and uh, a lot of teeth, smiling, his hair slicked back, he um, combs his hair a lot. He's that kind of masculine, obnoxious character that Jean Dujardin played in the OSS Sandicept movies in the early part of this century. And uh, there's a lot um, of influence of this film on those movies that Jean Dujardin did. That kind of, you know, not too bright and um, cocky secret agent kind of character is very much Bob Sinclair in this movie. Now, the DVD I've got of this is actually the French DVD. I purchased it when Sal and I were in Paris in 2004, went into uh, a virgin megastore, as they were then. Uh, I was actually looking for some of Claude Nugaro's music because he'd just died the previous day and I heard about it. And I thought, I'll get a CD of this guy's music. And then while we were in there, they went, we went into the DVD section. I was lost because there are all these French films I didn't know about. And I was looking for movies that had English subtitles in them or English adaptations. And I found the, the copy of Le Magnifique which I then schlepped around Europe for six weeks before we brought it home. And this version has three versions. It's got the French version without subtitles, the German version without subtitles, and the English dub version. I wasn't given the option of a subtitled version of this film, unfortunately. So I went with the English dub version, which has got a lot of little one-liners in it, a lot of little jokes and um, a lot of over-the-top stuff. It wasn't, of course, dubbed by Jean-Paul Belmondo or, for that matter, Vittorio Caprioli. But um, I believe Jacqueline Bassett did her own voice in it. So I've kind of filtered this movie through the lens of the fact that it's dubbed rather than in the original language of subtitles. But with this movie, which is essentially a comedy anyway, it doesn't matter as much as it would perhaps with a much more serious film. Now, the movie then cross-cuts between the life of Francois, who's a downtrodden pulp writer and he's being ripped off by his sus publisher, Vittorio Caprioli, of course, uh, in a very bad wig. And he also wears a bad wig when he's playing Karpov, the Albanian villain in the movie. So they cross-cut between the two stories, and there's a beautiful transition where we go from the world of Bob Sinclair to the world of Francois Merlin, which I'm not going to spoil for you. If you want to see the movie, see it. And there is a kind of really nice way of transitioning between the -the over-the-top, Um, exciting world of Bob Sinclair with the prosaic apartment-ridden world of Francois Merlin where he's got problems with electricians and plumbers and his flat's a mess and he is, you know, just not coping. He's divorced. His life isn't exactly where he wants it to be. He's smoking way too much and he's just kind of not got his shit together at all even though he is pumping out these outrageous and silly novels to keep you know, bread on the table. So we kind of we want to go back to the Bob Sinclair world where we when at first we're in the world of Francois. But that slowly changes as the movie progresses as well, as the character of Francois gets fed up with writing these cheap Bob Sinclair novels and kind of living hand-to-mouth almost on the the proceeds of that. And as he becomes more empowered and more able to get his shit together, part of which is inspired by his feelings for Christine, he, Francois, becomes a more competent person. And as he becomes more competent and more able to deal with his life, Bob 
Sinclair becomes more outrageous and silly and more buffoonish. He tries to leap into a sports car and isn't successful at it. He suddenly um, gets the best of him. You know, the, the bad guys get the best of him in a really cool scene where they basically do a Warner Brothers Roadrunner cartoon thing by putting a giant Mylar kind of mirror in front of his sports car when he's driving along a mountain road. There's that kind of thing where they the movie seems to say, right, either Bob Sinclair's got his shit together or Francois Merlin has. You can't have both. And that's reasonable too. Francois wants to write a more serious novels and the need to keep his income going with these crazy Bob Sinclair novels is kind of stopping him in a sense and it's only when he empowers himself and stands up to for himself that a bob turns into a, a clownish buffoon and, and totally silly and over the top and not what he is at the start of the movie and francois does things like he goes out and plays petonk with some guys he dresses better he washes and bathes he um, looks after himself much much better than he has been and he's life starts going onto track just as Bob's falls into a heap and then Francois writes the ending of the last Bob Sinclair movie which subverts the macho idiocy of the character that he has created in a really nice way um, there are some bits that don't play well to a 21st century audience um, Tatiana is ravished by a bunch of villains Bob um, falls in love and runs away with Karpov in a very kind of camp sequence, over-the-top kind of flouncing, campy, gay kind of thing, um, which is not a, not kind of out of place in this kind of farcical movie, but doesn't quite play well to our sensibilities and our sensitivities to um, gay characters in films. But the movie is of its time, and without... This, 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 of course, brings up that old issue of sexism, racism, and mockery of other um, sexual orientations in older films. Do we stop watching older films? I don't think so. I think you've got to accept that something's of its time, and the gay parts in there, and the cartoon ravishment of Tatiana, who's not a real character in the in the movie, but a kind of over-the-top caricature of a sexy seductive woman who like Bob himself ends up clownish and unattractive well I think we've just got to let that go and let that be what it is and be what it was for the time while acknowledging that it's not how things would play now it's a hard one to do because culture changes and our beliefs change and the way we see the world changes and watching older films challenges that change that we've made and maybe highlights it for us and makes us more aware of the fact that the culture that a movie was made in is not the culture that you and I live in in the second decade of the 21st century. And I find that interesting, but it does kind of not spoil the enjoyment of certain films, but lets us watch them with a different eye than we would otherwise. And, and that's one of the things that happens in this movie. But having said that and leaving aside those issues, the movie is terrifically funny and a lot of fun um i'm gonna have to watch more belmondo movies from the 60s and 70s i've watched a number of them the burglars is one i'm definitely going to do for the podcast because that one is a really nice euro crime thriller apart from anything else so if i'm going to do i'm going to do a euro crime double bill with the sicilian clan and the burglars i think probably not next episode but it's on my list as a double and I think I'm going to enjoy the fuck out of talking about that. I don't normally drink when I'm podcasting, but given the weather's quite warm, I've got a nice little glass of Bombay Sapphire Gin over ice at the moment, and I'm enjoying that in between um, little bits of recording here. So if I get totally crazy and tell all you guys that I love you and and yeah, you guys are the best and all that kind of stuff, it's the gin talking. It's actually not me. But just to finalise things for Le Magnifique, Beautifully photographed, uh, Philippe de Broca. It, you've got to pair this one up, I think, with Lom de Rio, uh, that man from Rio, which is fantastic. Which is why the reason why the movie in English is called The Man from Acapulco. It's to make that connection between the man from Rio, Lom de Rio, 
and this film, even though they were filmed 10 years apart. There's another um, interesting Philippe de Broca, Jean-Paul Belmondo collaboration. It's a movie that's got a number of um, names. In English, it's up to his ears. Also known as Chinese Adventures in China or Les Tribulations d'un Chinois et Chin. Uh, 1965 movie with John Paul Belmondo and Ursula Andrus, which, apart from anything else, was partly filmed in Kathmandu in the 1960s and shows a very different um, kind of comical character play by John Paul Belmondo. There is a Blu-ray um, box set of um, Up to His Ears and Lom de Rio, which I picked up from Amazon. And if you want to kind of dip into this Philippe de Broca thing uh, with John Paul Belmondo, Definitely um, grab that one because the transfers are really crisp and the movies are over-the-top silly, outrageous and um, a lot of fun. But uh, I I do recommend uh, Le Magnifique and I've got that extra connection with it which I kind of like too, the fact that I bought it in Paris and watching the movie and just looking at the box for the film reminds me of the, the... four days that we spent there and um, it's a place I want to get back to I may not ever be able to because of financial reasons but I would love to go back to Paris again because it's one of the cities that I really clicked with and there's so much interesting culture comes from that part of the world and interesting history that happened in that part of the world that um, I find it endlessly fascinating. So thank you to Eric Peterson for reminding me of this film and uh, getting me to put it into the podcast. It was It's a lot of fun to watch. And uh, yeah, and Belmondo and Jacqueline Bissett do have a, a nice chemistry there. They play off each other very well. And Vittorio Caprioli, who didn't have an enormously long, you know, enormously prominent career as an actor, is a lot of fun playing the villain in the piece. But anyway, I'm going to take another break, and when I get back, I'm going to talk about one of the classics of film noir from 1946, the twisted and at times sexually perverse film noir Gilda, directed by Charles Vidor, starring Rita Hayworth, Glenn Ford, George McCready, and Joseph Kalia. Gilda, are you decent? Me? When they had the earthquake in San Francisco back in 1906, they said that old Mother Nature was up to her old tricks. That's the story that went around, but here's the real down. Put the blame on Maine, boy Put the blame on Maine One night she started to shim and shake That brought on the Frisco quake So you can put the blame on Maine, boy Put the blame on Maine They once had a shooting up in the Klondike when they got damn a groove. Folks were putting the blame on the lady known as Lou. That's the story that went around, but here's the real lowdown. Put the blame on Maine, boy. Put the blame on Maine. Mame did a dance called the Hitchy Coo. That's the thing that slew my groove. Put the blame on Mame, boys. Put the blame on Mame. That, of course, was Rita Hayworth talking and the voice of Anita Ellis singing Put the Blame on Mame, to which... Rita Hayworth was lip-syncing from the movie Gilda from 1946, directed by Charles Vidor. Uh, the best pricey of this film was the one I found on the back of the Blu-ray. And it's a little bit long, but um, I'll read it anyway. 
The legendary reader, however, sizzles with sensuality and magnetism as she sings Put the Blame on Mame and delivers a dazzling performance as the enticing temptress Gilda. In the story of Gilda, Johnny Farrell Glenn Ford goes to work for Ballon Munson, George McCready, the proprietor of an illegal gambling casino in a South American city, and quickly rises to become Munson's main man. All is well until Munson returns from a trip with his new bride Gilda, a woman from Johnny's past. Munson, unaware of the previous love affair, assigns Farrell the job of keeping Gilda a faithful wife. Fraught with hatred, Gilda does her best to antagonise, intimidate and instil jealousy in Farrell until circumstances allow him to get even. And that pretty much covers it. It's um, a really nice little well-written and concise version of what happens in the movie. Back in Paleo Cinema Podcast 26 when I covered the original Thomas Crown Affair, I said that somebody had described that film as a love affair between two bastards. Now, arguably, Gilda can be perceived as a love affair between three bastards, being Gilda, Johnny and Balan Munson, played by George McCready. Of the three, probably Gilda's the most likable because she's the most relatable to a 21st century audience. But Balan is a businessman who runs an illegal casino but also runs a tungsten monopoly as a front man for some Nazis. Now, the Nazis gave him the patents and the rights to that just before the war ended because they knew things weren't going well. And he was, in a sense, holding their land rights and their patents in trust for the Nazis post-war. So Ballon isn't uh, a virtuous character. He, We first see Johnny playing craps with loaded dice in an alley and then about to get mugged by a guy... Uh, in that very same alley, only to have Ballon come up and uh, assist him using a sword cane, a very nice-looking sword cane. And one of the things that people have noticed about this film is the phallic symbolism of Ballon Munson's sword cane. There are some scenes where there's some pretty obvious phallic use of that particular um, prosthesis in several ways, and it becomes less prominent later in the film, when Balan, the power shifts between the three characters and Balan becomes a less powerful character in the film. So, make of that what you will. But the people making the film were not unaware of this. They were working under the horrible and nasty and crippling restrictions of the production code at the time. So there were things they couldn't say outright, but there were things that were put into a subtext for the knowing audiences to pick up. Knowing audiences, of course, being a lot smarter than studio and government censors are. The cast is really good in this. I I like the cast a lot. Even the supporting cast is really kind of top-notch. First off, you've got Rita Hayworth, who at the time was married to Orson Welles as Gilda. And um, Rita Hayworth, a few months before, had had her first child, Rebecca Welles. Uh, and so she wore a corset while she was making this movie because obviously she still had a little bit of a baby body. But uh, we've got Glenn Ford in there playing Johnny Farrell. Uh, Glenn Ford, interesting career. He did another movie with Rita Hayworth uh, about six years later called Affair in Trinidad, which I haven't watched for a long time, but that's got a, a, an interesting cast as well. Uh, Alexander Scorby's in a George Vosovic. Again, Steve Garay. And Steve Garay is in... Gilda as well, playing Uncle Pio, the men's room attendant in the film, who acts as a friend to Gilda and as a sounding board and almost like a conscience to Johnny. Uh, Stephen Gray, interesting guy, Eastern European, changed his name when he came over before the war, ended up being an acting teacher and working in community theatre a lot in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. And he was well respected as an acting teacher. Then, of course, we've got Joseph Kalea playing Detective Obregon. Kalea uh, played a lot of Hispanic characters, but he was actually Maltese. He was born in Malta. Uh, and he's he had a long career as a character actor. Um, any number of really fine films. He was in Algiers, for instance, Wyoming, The Cross of Lorraine, which is a movie that I saw a while back, Wild as the Wind. Did some TV as well. He was in an episode of Have Gun, Will Travel. He was in Touch of Evil as well, playing Pete Menzies. So he was a, a long-time friend of Orson Welles as well. Uh, 
Interesting how people never seem to play their own ethnicity in uh, classic Hollywood films. Then we've got Gerald Moore playing Captain Delgado. He's in there. All the cool guys have mustaches in this film. And then we have George McCready playing Balan Munson. George McCready is an actor who had a prominent scar on his right cheek. Uh, and the interesting thing is we don't see Balan's scar until after Gilda comes on the scene. Uh, George McCready's always filmed from the other side up until that point. He got the scar by crashing a Model T Ford in the 1920s and went through his whole career as um, with that scar on his face, which lent him to, of course, character roles and bad guy roles mostly because scarred faces are a reflection of scarred souls in the kind of grammar of movies. But George McCready's also in one of my favourite films, Two Weeks in Another Town. He plays a writer who is uh, quite critical of Kirk Douglas's character in that film, uh, John Andrus. So every time I see George McCready in something, I kind of remember that I liked him in a number of films. And his Balan Munson in this is really good. He's upright. He's um, menacing. He is a person who has to have control over things. And when he loses control, he loses his charisma in a weird sense. Then, of course, we have Glenn Ford. Uh, He did a number of westerns. I first saw him in westerns when I was a kid. And uh, he did TV. His career kind of peaked in the 1950s. I remember he was in uh, Run for the Sun, uh, a golfing movie about the career of the golfer Ben Hogan, which was quite good. I remember seeing him in that very early on, doing chip shots into a bucket really well. Uh, And, you know, Glenn Ford, his career kind of petered out in the 1960s. He ended up doing TV, including a TV series called Cades County. And, um, yeah, he, uh, of course, he did um, The Big Heat as well for Fritz Lang. There was always a kind of toughness about Glenn Ford's characters. Uh, again, he played Ben Wade in 310 to Humor as well, another classic Western. Uh, he started out working class too, so he had that kind of, even though he was kind of baby-faced in movies like Gilda, there was, there is a kind of toughness about the guy that comes from background a little bit in, in character as well. Uh, Democrat all his life, left-wing kind of guy. All of his life supported um, FDR and a number of other left-wing causes. Never quite got to the stage of being on the radar of the House and American Activities Committee. But he was definitely on the side of the Angels for his whole life. Um, Rita Hoeworth's career didn't quite go as well as Glenn Ford's did, and it, it kind of peaked at roughly the same time uh, in her later life. She suffered from early onset Alzheimer's, so her life on the whole wasn't a happy one. Her original name was Margarita Cancino, and she um, started out as a dancer from a very early age. Uh, One of the things that Hollywood did to her, which is uh, an interesting thing and um, not the sort of stuff that is talked about very much is she had a very low hairline on her forehead, so she spent two years getting electrolysis follicle by follicle to lift her hairline which was to make her look less Hispanic which she actually was so she suffered kind of quite painful um, medical procedures for two years to get um, the look that Hollywood wanted for her. Now one of the reasons why the movie is so interesting and why a whole bunch of academic papers have been written about it and it's one of those movies from the 1940s that's been most written about if you do um, a Google search on feminist interpretations of Gilda you'll see that there are any number of them all pretty much saying much the same stuff which of course is okay because the the stuff's there for us to to interpret I mean there is... um, a gay subtext, for instance, to the um, relationship between Johnny and Balan. For instance, little subtle things uh, which are quite telling to a modern audience. Stuff like Johnny has a key to Balan's house. And there's there are little subtle bits in some of the writing which leads us to think that their relationship is quite close. And there's a a lot of fondness between the two male characters, even up to the point where Gilda comes into their lives, and of course Gilda's been in Johnny's life in the past, and is currently in balance, and then that kind of dynamic between the three of them 
really kicks in. Uh, there are subtle bits played there to imply certain things about the relationship. And the movie is stronger if you buy into that implication. If you buy into the fact that Johnny and Balan are in a relationship and then Balan goes away on holiday, comes back with a wife who happens to be Johnny's ex, the reasons for the um, enmity between various characters play much stronger if you buy into that interpretation of it. Now, one of the things that I find a little bit challenging about this film and one of the bits that I really have most problem with is, and this is a slight spoiler, so forgive me, it doesn't actually spoil the enjoyment of the movie, it's just outlining some plot points to a purpose. When Balan appears to dis- you know, to die in a plane crash over the sea, Johnny marries Gilda and then imprisons her, basically. All the things he loves about her, her openness, her sexuality, her outrageousness, all the things that infuriate but excite him. He tries to curtail. He basically um, imprisons her and acts like, unfortunately, a lot of abusive partners do in the modern world. But this is kind of given a bit of hand-waving and a a kind of free pass in the movie, whereas from our modern viewpoint... Johnny's character seems unredeemably negative. Now, here's the way I I look at it. Here's the interpretation that I put on the characters. Gilda, in the movie, is a woman who uses her sexuality for power, and she's unashamed in her sexuality. She knows the men find her attractive. She enjoys that. She plays on that. She is not by nature monogamous even though the movie does for reasons of censorship kind of curtail that to a certain extent she's a person who lives life on her own terms and that plays very well to a 20th first century feminist audience having a woman in power of her own sexuality having her in power of her own life having her live life on her own terms is seen as a very positive thing and and rightly so i believe in the movie's world, and you've got to remember this is 1940s America, that's a challenge to the status quo. That's a threatening thing, and that's something that many men, while they may find it exciting, also find it a little frightening. They don't want their wives to be like Gilda except in the bed. And one of the things, of course, that Rita Howell said was, men went to bed with Gilda and woke up with me. And that <laughs> does also say something about the character, that a woman with that kind of forthright sexuality, which is a, a very female kind of power. She doesn't act masculine at all. She just, in a woman's way, um, has control over her own life. It is something that men find attractive and insecure men find threatening. And both Johnny and Balan are, possibly for reasons of bisexuality, insecure in their self-belief that they can have a successful relationship with somebody as outrageously heterosexual and outrageously in control of her own sexuality as Gilda is. Which isn't to say that Gilda, the character, is, is faultless either. The way the movie plays it is that all of the affairs that Gilda had didn't actually happen. She was play-acting them, getting Johnny to pick her up outside certain hotels at two in the morning, things like that, are kind of fakery to make Johnny jealous because Gilda loves Johnny and hates him and there's a love-hate between them which Joseph Kalea's character Obregon comments on uh, there's, the, both of them are fucked up to the max and they're playing all of these power games between each other during their relationship and meanwhile Balan's off to the side with his sword cane and comes back into their lives at a crucial moment. Now, there are, the people around them can see how destructive this is as well, which is the interesting thing. Uncle Pio, the men's room attendant, who becomes a, a close friend to Gilda. She says he's cute. And uh, she plays put the, put the Blame on Mame on the guitar while Uncle Pio listens in the nightclub after hours when there's nobody else around. So they're friends, and then he's her confidant in a sense. And Uncle Pio 
also has conversations with Johnny about whether he's a gentleman or a peasant. And Uncle Pio's opinion for most of the film is that Johnny is a peasant. He he doesn't have any class to him. He does the wrong things and his emotional reaction to things is fucking him up. So Uncle Pio is the Jiminy Cricket of the, the piece. He's the, he's the conscience of, of two of the characters there. Of course, Balan doesn't have a conscience there. He's um, unashamedly uh, in the pay of Nazis. He's supported the Nazis and has grown rich profiting from their business dealings and when things get too close and when they start challenging him after the war and want their share in order to uh, stop them from killing him he fakes his own death after killing one of them in quite a good scene in a crowded nightclub at new year's eve or during carnival sorry not new year's eve but during carnival it's um it's a nice little scene too and again the sword cane is used for quite phallic purposes in that but I do like George McCready's Balan. He's got such a stick up his ass. He's kind of you know, a character that plays both ends against the middle, and he doesn't have. And the only thing that redeems him is the fact that he loves Gilda. But beside that, he's and also, of course, his friendship and his relationship with Johnny. He can form close friendships. But because of the nature of his business, he hides who he really is from the people with whom he has these relationships up until the point that every the shit hits the fan. So they are comp- they're very complex characters, these three. And the movie, while hampered by the needs of censorship and the needs to have a kind of vanilla happy ending, that need being imposed by the studio, of course, I can't really see the characters of Johnny and Gilda having a long-term relationship. I don't think that she can kind of hide her light under a bushel forever and that that again yeah you're reading into things with these movies and you're saying what you know of the characters based on what you know of real life so i can't see somebody like that being happy to just be the wife of a businessman living in america who's made a lot of money from illegal gambling in south america and i can't see johnny changing his nature and we do see in various bits uh, right at the start where he's playing with loaded dice and the way he can see what's going on in the casino that other people don't see, and that kind of criminal awareness, and not something that goes away, and not something that really can be, um, again, hidden under a bushel. So all of these characters are, are deeply flawed, with the possible exception of Detective Obregon and Uncle Pio. Um, and th- there are other people in the film as well. There's a character actor called Joe Sawyer, who was great friends with John Ford, who plays Casey, one of the offsiders of um, Ballon. And Joe Sawyer I knew because he was, for a long time he was in the 1950s Adventures of Rin Tin Tin as one of the soldiers in the fort. And so I automatically see him and I, I think of Rin Tin Tin. He was also one of the character actors in It Came From Outer Space as well. He's one of the guys who gets taken over by the aliens in that. But again, uh, he's got a beautifully character actor mug and he only ever played a certain range of roles, but he was quite good within that range. He's got a kind of um, Xboxes kind of face about him, which I find kind of fun. Now, this, this movie gets 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, which goes to show how much people like it. Now, I think the reason that we like it, and it's good to examine why 21st century audiences like a certain kind of movie, is because, and increasingly I find this with a lot of films, and I find it really interesting, is that there are characters, in this case Gilda, who play well to a 21st century audience. There's something about them, there's something about their kind of self-knowledge and self-awareness that is attractive to us. They're kind of like forerunners of a certain attitude towards women and a certain attitude towards female sexuality. And Gilda is very much that kind of character. The fact that she's self-mocking in a way she's not she's not without flaws she's superstitious she makes that stupid mistake of um trying to con johnny and playing the men off against each other and not acknowledging what she feels early enough in the piece and then they've got there's a dynamic of love hate between johnny and gilda whereas 
the only person that doesn't hate any of the other two is the Nazi, Balan. He's the one who doesn't, who plays things fairly straightforward all along. He's fond of Johnny. He loves Gilda. Um, there's the argument that he loves both of them, of course. But the weird thing about this movie is the only honest character emotionally is the Nazi, even though he has come back to kill them both. Um, he's he stayed true to his own nature and hasn't kind of deluded himself about his own feelings in any way at all, and that makes it that makes things quite interesting. There, I'm actually a little surprised that I haven't done this movie earlier in Paleo Cinema podcast. I think it's definitely the kind of movie that I created the podcast for. It's um, just wonderful and it's got all of those kind of undercurrents of deviant sexuality and um and kind of film noir tropes that that make it really good the i've got the australian um dvd the madman one and there's something interesting in that as well there's uh, a talk about the movie where they've cross-cut interviews with martin scorsese and an interview with baz lerman talking about Gilder and then they put clips from the movie in between the scenes with the two guys, the two directors uh, to illustrate what they're saying. Now the really interesting thing I found out about this and it's the reason why I love Scorsese talking about movies and hate Baz Luhrmann talking about movies is quite simple and Sal and I sat down and watched this and I explained it to her and she agreed with me. When Scorsese is talking about films, he's talking about the people who make the films. He talked about the cinematographer in the film, Rudolf Matei. He talked about the um, screenplay by Joe Isinger and Marion Parsonet. He talked about Charles Vidor. He talked about everybody to do with the film. Baz Luhrmann came in, and for about one-third of the talk, he was talking about Baz Luhrmann. He was talking about what he'd do and how he saw things. And he made it about him rather than about the people all now dead who made this wonderful piece of cinema. And that's the reason why I love hearing commentary from Scorsese, who is as knowledgeable as any human being on the planet on classic cinema. And Baz Luhrmann, who is a self-promoter and very, very much in my opinion, a second-rate talent. And he got worse when I watched this interview. Uh, it's really a, a chronic piece of work, and I find that... I mean, the guy's a successful director. His movies don't make money, but for some reason he's a successful director. And yet he's insecure enough to, when talking about a classic film, talk about himself rather than the film. And that is kind of, to me, unforgivable. But it doesn't take away from the movie. I mean, all it, it takes nothing away from this film, which is really great. Um, Rita Hayworth did a, a number of good films. Of course, you've got Lady from Shanghai, which she did with Orson Welles just after they broke up. And again, you've got that undercurrent of um, perverse sexuality at play in that film as well. And just to finalise on that, one of the things that show that this is a strong and sui generis kind of film is the fact that nobody's talking about remaking this movie nobody at all is talking about it because you could not remake it without Rita Hayworth it's just so strongly identified with her as a character that the thought of a remake is something that even the money men in Hollywood wouldn't really consider so that's about it this time around and uh, for the podcast of course 179 so we're creeping up on the 200th podcast let me know what you want me to do for the 200th i've got no fucking idea at the moment but i know i want to make it big and at the same time as the 200th episode of paleo cinema podcast i'm going to be hitting the 100th episode of the martian driving podcast so bigger than ben hurd's going to be but i haven't figured out how anyway I've got I've redone the credits at the end of the film to add people that I've forgotten and that dropped off the twig for some reason on the list. And I've got to do a big apology to Steve Sullivan for leaving him off a couple of times. Steve has supported the podcast via the Patreon campaign and deserves the credit that comes from that. 
Anyway, look after yourselves. If you're up in the northeastern part of the US or even anywhere across the US that's being affected by weather, please look after yourselves. Rug up, watch good movies, listen to podcasts. Not just mine, there are any number of good ones out there. Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, um, Silver and Gold, love that album. You know who they are. But anyway, I'm going to go now. So take care of yourselves. Stay cool if you're down here. Stay warm if you're up there. I'll be back next week with Martian Driving Podcast. I'll be back in two weeks with Paleo Cinema Podcast. Catch you later, people. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema and Martian Driving Podcast done in the style of movie credits. Thank you very much to all of the people who've supported the Patreon campaign, and you can do that too by going to patreon.com slash paleocinema. I'd like to thank Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, our technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Dylan, the goat wrangler, Elaine, the scientific advisor, Julia, the casting director, Chris, the camera operator, Christopher, the gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve Sullivan, who is our director of Monster Effects, and you can find his stuff at CushingHorrors.com, and Eric as our set security head. So thank you very much to all of the people who have supported the podcast financially via the Patreon campaign. <laughs>